0: Good morning. Sorry, I was doing double duty with the offering. This morning, we are going to continue in our study through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I would invite you to open up your Bibles or your device to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 will be taking under consideration verses 12 through 18. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 12 through 18. Here then, the infallible word of God preserved for us in these pages. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has said, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we know that it is impossible for us to conjure up the affections necessary to please you in and of ourselves. Father, this morning your word will confront us. And I pray, Father, that we would be humble and we would have submissive hearts. I pray that your spirit would use this word to speak to our hearts, drive it deeply into the deepest recesses of our souls, that we would hear your word, heed the admonition that we receive this morning. I pray that we would not have hard hearts, that we would... Listen and obey. Father, grant that. We plead and we beg of you this morning. It is through Christ, our Lord and intercessor, we pray. The question that we all have to answer, or the question that always arises in the back of our minds is, why is life so hard? Why is it so difficult? I mean, just think about it. Our jobs are hard. Our relationships are hard. Our bodies are ill. Why is life so hard? These are the questions that the book of Ecclesiastes is taking up. But the answer that the book of Ecclesiastes gives us is, not in order to solve merely the conundrum, but in order that we might live in wisdom despite the hardships and despite the difficulties. When I was young, I remember one day that I was in the lunchroom in the cafeteria of the school. During our lunch, I remember the principal of the school coming in, we were being rowdy, and she proceeded to grab a broom, She went to a table that was empty, and she began to wail on that table, making loud noise. Needless to say, there was utter silence immediately. No one said a word. And when she saw that we were quiet, she proceeded to speak. Now, she could have attempted to raise her voice above our voices to try to get our attention. She could have made her point by elevating her her voice. But for dramatic effect, she used a loud bang to arouse us from our indifference. That is something similar to what we have here in the book of Ecclesiastes in the first chapter. The preacher, he knows who we are. He knows me and he knows you. He knows your habits and inclinations because he has lived in the same world that you live. The same sun that warms your face also warmed his. He felt the same rain, observed the same wind, and he has felt the same weariness that you and I feel on a day-to-day basis, the same exhaustions. He knows what what your life is like. And in order to arouse us from our doldrums, he begins with a loud bang, showing us through nature, through the cycles of life, that life is vanity and it is fleeting. He knows that we're about three feet away, but he is using a megaphone to get our attention. Why? Because our attention is hard to get. The world that we live in is alluring, tantalizing, enticing, provocative. But the preacher is telling us, yeah, it is those things, but in and of itself, the world is empty. There is nothing new under the sun. And that's what the preacher has done in the first 11 verses. He has, in a sense, banged on a table so that we can perk up and listen. Now that he has our attention and he has us thinking about the futility of life, and having put the megaphone down, in a sense, he proceeds to introduce himself. Himself. And he says, hello, I have walked your shoes, I know what you feel, I know what it is to chase after the wind, I've been on that same hamster wheel. The preacher tells us this morning, do you want to know how to walk in wisdom in this difficult life? He tells us, walk in humility in this life and know your limitations. The main message that the preacher Solomon wants to tell us this morning is that we have to walk in humility in this life and understand our limitations. That is the admonition that we will receive from the preacher this morning. Walk in humility in this life and know your limitations. The question that now confronts us is this How then are we to walk in humility? knowing our limitations. And I think the preacher provides for us two things that we must acknowledge in order for us to walk in wisdom. The first thing he is going to exhort us to acknowledge is our lack of satisfaction in this life. He's going to put it out in the front. He's going to show us that life on earth is not satisfying. The second thing he's going to admonish for us to acknowledge is the frustrations and limits of our own understanding and knowledge. So first, acknowledge your lack of satisfaction in this life. Our deepest dreams, our deepest desires will never be met in this life. What you so desperately want Will you will not find under the sun. Ecclesiastes is a theological book, but in a sense is a philosophical book. It stops us in our tracks and confronts us with the big questions of life. It is not interested in how you feel or in providing you a safe place for you to process your thoughts. No, the preacher wants to make us uncomfortable. The preacher is asking you and I this morning, after all is said and done, what in the world is the meaning of life? Why are we here? What is the purpose of all of this? Do you know? Do you really know? Are you sure? Are you living like you know? The preacher is a bit blunt and unapologetic with his approach, and at times we will find him edgy, and at times, we'll find them very, very uncomfortable. But that is what is at stake. We have to answer the questions, what is the meaning of life? In the verses, for our consideration this morning, we are personally introduced to the preacher. And he says several things about himself. If you look at verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And as Eric mentioned earlier, the queen of Sheba had experienced the great wealth and wisdom of this great king in Israel. And if you look at his, what he puts forth, in other words, his resources, his net worth, he was the king of Israel, he had resources, he had the time, he had it all. He had the American dream in his pocket, enough money to never run out and enough time to do whatever he wanted. He never reported to a boss. He never was forced to do a job he didn't want. What we think that we want, he had. And because he had the resources and because he had the time, he applied his heart to seek and to search. By wisdom, what is done under the earth all that is done under heaven. He didn't flip through certain books and arrived at a conclusion in about a half hour. He says that he applied his heart to seek and to search. Think of the intensity of a woman, a mother who has lost their child and is seeking to find them. This is what Solomon is pursuing. He is applying all of his heart, all of his efforts to find what is the meaning of life. Here, Solomon, in his intense desire to understand the meaning of life, is leaving no stone unturned. And what does he find? Well, verse 13 tells us it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, said the man who had it all. The man who had lacked no resource, the man who had An abundant resource of wisdom said that it is an unhappy business that God has tasked us with. The word unhappy is the Hebrew word ra'ah, which means not much to you, but it does show that I know a little bit of Hebrew. (laughs) Just a little chuckle here in this gloomy book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. The Hebrew word is usually translated evil. The sentence could read, It is an evil business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The preacher is saying that the task that we have been given to be busy with in this momentary life is evil. And you say, Wait a minute. Are we sure Are we read in the Bible? I thought God wanted my happiness. Why would the preacher ascribe a task that God has given man as evil? Well, there's a tension there. We must remember that the preacher is speaking from the vantage point of earth. Have you ever seen a father or a relative or a family member hold a toy away from a child, taunting the child to grab it? Ever, it's like a game that people play just to get the child laughing. Once the child thinks they're going to get the toy, it is pulled away from them. Initially, it's fun. You see the excitement on the child's face as they see the toy approaching. When the child perceives that the toy will never be in their hands, the child starts to cry. Eventually, the father or the mother or the relative relents and gives the child the toy so that they can calm down. But imagine if the dad never gave the child the toy and left them there crying. You would say, that is so mean, that is so evil. That's how the preacher feels. Do you ever feel that way? Do you feel the preacher's tension? Don't you like that? Ti- don't you feel like that child at times? Let's face it: we all want happiness, but it eludes us. We want to find satisfaction, but it vanishes. We want to be considered, respected. We want to be loved. We want justice. We want peace. So what do we do? We work in this life. We are busy creating relationships. We are busy making sure we count. We devote time to make sure that we are considered and respected. You get up excited for the day, ready to tackle the challenges at hand. But every time we think we're going to get that love, that respect, that dignity, that satisfaction, like that, Father... Pulling away that toy, and we feel like we're clutching the wind. Have you ever grabbed air in excitement? There are no trophies for those who clutch the wind. You will never find a young boy running in to tell his dad, 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 look, I caught the wind in my hand. So, do you feel the frustration? I do, the preacher did. So much was the frustration the preacher felt that he would go on to say in chapter 2, verse 17, I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to him. All was vanity, striving after the wind. In verse 14, the preacher says that he had seen everything that was done under the sun, that it was all vanity. He knew that his experience was universal. And in a sense, his fundamental experience could be multiplied a thousand times over. Our life is frustrating because we gain, because the gain we seek is not found in this world. Our life is frustrating because the satisfaction that we seek is not in this world. Yet, this is the only thing that we know. This is is the world that we feel. Our hearts are again and again captivated by the bubbles of this momentary life. The bubbles excite us and we run after them until they pop in our faces. We say to ourselves, but I thought that the more money I, I, I make will make me happy, but I thought that the relationships would bring me joy, but I thought that the job would finally help me achieve my dreams, but I thought... You fill in the blank. Our hearts are famished for meaning and satisfactions, but we don't find that, that satisfaction here. Not now. Not ever. And that It's deeply frustrating. Have you ever gone to a store trying to buy something that you need, you desperately need, or you really, really want, and you can't find it? Yesterday, my wife and I went to Home Depot. We needed a trash can to put in the ashes from our smoker, our grill smoker, and I went to Home Depot buy it, we saw it online, and after looking for a while, you know, you try to find it always on your own, and then you finally, after about half hour, you act to ask the sales associate, who would know where the item is at, we asked him, hey, we're here, we just need this trash can, do you know where it's at? He looked it up to try to give us the aisle number, and he said, no, we're out, We're actually sold out completely. We don't have stock here or in our warehouses. So we couldn't even buy it online. Trying to gain the satisfaction we want, the peace, the love, the justice, the tranquility we desire in this life, listen, is forever out of stock in this momentary world. We won't find it in the things of this world. Dear Christians, what you are looking for is not here. This is not our home. And that is frustrating because this is the world that we live in. It's the world that we see and feel the most. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that our forefathers in the faith also lived with the same tension. He says, By faith, he, that is Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living, hear this, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Why did Abraham do this? He acknowledged the frustration of this life and embraced the annoyance of his tent living because he was looking for a better city. He humbly accepted that this world would be frustrating. He accepted that it was not this world that was going to give him the satisfaction that he wanted, the peace that he wanted, the ultimate joy that he wanted. So he looked toward heaven. I know life is hard Right now, we are irritated by all that goes on around us many times, but God sustains us. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We live as though we are citizens of another world you say but why what, what, what? okay i get that cool we're citizens of another world but isn't there a way to like alleviate the frustration isn't there a way to like you know bring it down a couple notches i think john calvin is helpful when he says listen to this our soul entangled in the enticements of the flesh, seeks its happiness on earth. In order to resist this wickedness, the Lord teaches his people about the emptiness of this present life through constant lessons in suffering. Thus, so that his people don't promise themselves lofty and untroubled peace in this life. He often permits them to be troubled and harassed by wars, uprisings, robberies, and other injuries. Now, this guy isn't a guy who lived his life in tranquility. He was persecuted. He had to leave his town because of persecution. His own city was going to persecute him, and he died relatively young of an illness. And his life was constantly bombarded by the frailties of his body. And he is saying that God is trying to help us understand that this world will never give us the satisfaction that we want. In other words, if all is perfect in this life, why yearn for heaven? Why yearn for the kingdom of heaven? So do you want to be wise then let's walk in humility by acknowledging that this life will lack the satisfaction we desire and it will be filled with frustrations. Yet even in frustrations, God is working and using the very things that annoy us to point us to the life that is to come. You say, okay, I get it. Life will be frustrating at times. But tell me, preacher, throw me some encouragement. I mean, help me out here. The preacher says, okay, I'm not only admonishing admonishing you to acknowledge the lack of fulfillment in this life, but to just give you, to cheer you up a little bit, acknowledge the frustrations and limits of your knowledge. That's the second point. Acknowledge the frustrations and the limits of your knowledge. In verse 15, the preacher introduces a proverb For us to ponder. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. In this verse, the preacher gives to us an unsettling truth. There are situations that happen to us in life that we will never understand. The preacher says, What is crooked, it just can't be made straight. The word crooked here is probably better translated as bent, and the Hebrew construction has God as the subject of the word bent. So in other words, what God has bent cannot be made straight. God has bent. What God has bent, we can't unbend. Have you ever come across something that is crooked? and you're bothered by it, and you want to straighten it out. Maybe it's like a picture frame. You're walking through your house. Maybe something caused it to rattle, and it's just a little off the level, and you just go over there. It's the instinct, our human instinct. Oh, well, let me just tap it, and there. It's straight. And when we see things that are not according to our It's not conformed to what we think should be happening. We, in our power, try to unbend it. We want to find the solution or the answer to the circumstances. But what God has bent, we can't straighten out. But why? Why can't we straighten it out? Why can't we solve the problem? We'll we'll look at the second part of verse 15. He says, What is lacking cannot be counted. And what is lacking And what is lacking in our assessments of our circumstances? What is lacking is that we don't know why the circumstances have come our way. We don't have the knowledge, the understanding, the information. We don't have enough, enough knowledge to fix the problem. We can't unbend what God has bent because we don't know why he bent it in the first place. And that's frustrating because we want to unbend it all the time. That is our propensity, and that is the frustration that we feel. We all want to know the reasons for things in our life. The question that nags us the most is in this life are the questions, why? Why did my mother have to die when I was 18? Why did this unfortunate circumstance devastate my family? Why are me and my wife unable to have children? Why, why, why? There is a humility that is called for in these verses, and that is to acknowledge that we don't know. We don't have enough knowledge to make a right judgment. That is why Paul burst into praise when he can't figure all things out in Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, the depths of the riches... And the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. We can't. We are confined. But the lack of information described in verse 15 was not because the preacher didn't attempt to find out, it was that he was deprived. God didn't give him the wisdom, but he tried. Look at verse 16. Solomon acknowledges that he had acquired great wisdom. Again, as Eric read for us, that it was known around the world, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before him, that his heart had great experience with wisdom and knowledge. In other words, the boy knew what he was talking about. In verse 17, he says that he looked, at the problems of life from all angles, including from the angle of madness and folly. And yet, he felt like he was grasping at air. And he arrives at this ominous conclusion. "In much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What the preacher is saying is that even if we did know the answer to the why questions, it would only be the breeding ground for more why questions. The preacher is not dissuading us to do our studies and acquire knowledge. After all, he is the one who tells us in the book of Proverbs to seek wisdom and find the knowledge of God And the fear of God, that's the beginning of all wisdom. What he is saying is that knowing all the answers in life will not solve our problems or bring us more satisfaction. Your satisfaction is not found in answers. It's found in God himself and the promises that he gives us. Just this last week, I had to write a paper on the problem of evil. Now, if there's a question that you want to try to answer in the brief amount of time, this is probably not a question you want to try to tackle. The Christians and other philosophers have been speaking of this question for thousands of years. And it seems that the more you study the topic... The more questions arise. It's almost like it's the question that keeps on giving. My paper ended up being about 14 pages long. And you know what the answer was when I was all said and done? I don't know. I don't have enough information to understand and solve this perplexing problem. But what I do know is that God is sovereign. Listen to these words from the London Baptist Confession of 1689. God, the creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creature, creatures and things, from the greatest to the least, by his perfectly wise and holy providence, to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. I don't know. And the more I try to know, it just brings on more frustration and more conundrums. So that's why he says, he finishes, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So I don't know. And it's a good place to humbly admit that we don't know in this life the reasons why things happen. And what the preacher is trying to say to us this morning, and God through him is, As life on earth is hard. And since God governs all world affairs, every single thing, all of us are called to humbly submit to his will and trust him. Why? Because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, that is a promise that you can take to the bank. So as we look at our frustrations and limitations, we see here, what we see here is, as one commentator puts it, the preacher is exalting God. But what he exalts about God is the aspect of God's character which did not relieve Adam, Eve, or the serpent from sin's consequences. This is the God who governs us. He did not stop the unhappy business of paradise lost. We must linger here. This is what the preacher is helping us see, that there were, there's a consequence to the sin of Adam. Because Adam's sin, we live in, in unhappy business. And God did not relieve us And since God has made us linger here, this tells us that God is not going to save the world through easy escapism. The solution to the difficulties of life is not God taking you away from your problems. Why do we know that? Because we know that God came to save the world by coming down and feeling the same frustrations and anguishes that we feel. The time was going to arrive when Jesus also squinted at the brightness of the sun. Jesus will one day feel the frustrations of this life and say that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus would one day be weeping at the tomb of Lazarus feeling the pangs of death and separation. But Jesus would ultimately bear the root of our frustrations and happiness, which is sin. And he will say to his disciples and, say, and says to us this morning, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What we most desire in this life will not be found here in this momentary life. So, church, as we journey through this momentary life, let us walk in humility, knowing that this world will never satisfy us, and that there are many things that will happen to us that, when all is said and done, will bring us ever, eternal, everlasting joy, because God used them to bring us closer. To him. With humility, let's walk in this life knowing that we do not have satisfaction in this world and our knowledge of the things that happen in this world are limited. Let us pray. Father, we thank you because of the hope of the gospel because this message can conclude not in fatalism or nihilism. It can conclude not in woe is me it can conclude on the promises that we have in Christ, that this is not our home, that we live here as pilgrims and we sojourn. And soon, this temporary afflictions that we endure will give way to an eternal weight of glory so that we eagerly await. And I pray, Father, that you would sustain us even as we endeavor to love you and praise you through humility. We ask this, we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.